Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Joe Moroni. My name is David Blair, and I'll be your moderator today. This webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. And for the next hour, Joe will take any questions you have related to funding and politics uh, supporting employment in mental health systems of care. Joe is a senior program manager for public policy at the Institute for Community Inclusion at UMass Bo and UMass Boston and is also coordinator of training uh, and technical assistance at the Nidler-funded Vocational Rehabilitation and VR Management, RRTC, based at ICI. Uh, he was formerly the associate director of the largest community mental health center in Washington State, as well as having 17 years uh, career in public VR. He has consulted, trained, and lectured in all 50 states, Canada, Puerto Rico, Asia, and Europe, as well as over 40 years direct service and administrative experience in delivering rehabilitation services and in community mental health. Joe is also the editor on the editorial board of five journals. Uh, today's event is part of the National Resource Center on Employment, which is jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, and the Center for Mental Health Services, Substance Abuse, and Mental Health uh, uh, sorry, let me try, try that again. Center for Mental Health Services, Substance Abuse, and Mental Health Services Administration within the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. Uh, during the registration for the event, you were given the opportunity to submit questions in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we'll alternate between questions submitted in advance and the ones you ask here today in the chat room. Uh, to ask a question, you may type it in the box or you may ask it over the telephone if you're on the telephone with us. And when called on, uh, you'll just press star star on your phone to unmute yourself. Uh, your participation is critical to the success of this event. And I really look forward to you guys asking some questions. Uh, as a reminder, if you've joined us by telephone, please make sure to mute your computer speakers before asking questions. It causes this echo effect that's really unpleasant. So with that, welcome to the webinar, and I hope you enjoy the next hour. Uh, Joe, we're going to get started with the questions submitted during registration. Okay. Laura uh, asks us, have you ever seen any policies or practices that have successfully changed the culture regarding employment being more important, or at least as important as case management at an agency, where the agency has put their money and resources towards this in a substantial manner with a, with a high penetration or access to those services? Yeah, thanks for the question, Laura. The, the, uh, I guess the simple and the not so simple answer is yes and no. There, uh, uh, of various states in my travels, and, and in, in some states it's a county-based system, so it's, it's um, uh, much more localized where counties really control the, the system, unlike in Massachusetts where it's really a state-run mental health system, whereas in other states like, say, uh, Oregon and Washington is much more of a county-based system. There's certainly states that have put more effort into uh, systemic changes around highlighting employment. Uh, I would say um, very few of them, you know, I, I hesitate to say none because obviously I haven't been everywhere, but in, in the places I've been, very few of them have managed to successfully change the culture. When I think about changing the culture, I think there are several states that are creating a lot more evidence-based supported employment programs. I hesitate to name names, but historically, um, Maryland, Minnesota, to some extent, Illinois, Oregon, have been very successful in, in broadening the scope of evidence-based support and employment. In my experience, and, and certainly taking my point of view, even those states overall have not been able to successfully infuse employment into a core part of a recovery-oriented system of care. By that, I mean that I think there, there, there are those states and some others and some counties that have really done a good job of really uh, implementing IPS. There really is very little practical impact that I've seen around the country in terms of when case managers or clinicians do treatment planning, 
whether they really infuse employment into the overall treatment planning as opposed to identifying specific programs. So that's my, I certainly have this uh, discussion all the time with the IPS crowd, with folks from Westat, formerly at Dartmouth. You know, we have some disagreements on it, but I think we've done better at expanding programs than we have in terms of creating that system change. I guess the other thing I would say is in human services, we talk a lot about culture change. And I think that's important, but I think culture follows behavior rather than behavior following culture. And I think to some extent, we spend too much time doing things like training and keynote speeches about a culture of recovery and less about implementing practical things. For example, when I was at the mental health center, one of the, one of the changes I tried to implement was that every clinician, case manager, clinician, when they were doing initial treatment planning with people, if someone was unemployed longer than 30 days, they had to include something about employment on the treatment plan. It didn't mean getting someone a job right away if they weren't interested in working, but in recognizing that long-term unemployment is one of the most deleterious effects on people's physical and mental health. So that's my concern. So Yes, people have done better, but I, I can't say I've seen major system change in most states in terms of really inculcating uh, a culture of recovery and employment in mental health systems of care. Did anything stick out in your head? You know, if, if someone were themselves uh, as a provider or an employment specialist wanted to bring about the change, is there anything you would say to them, you know, to get the process started, you should do this? I think to some extent, it's, it's the employment folks, most of them get it. That's why they're in employment. I think they can certainly be a nag. They can certainly talk about um, being more assertive in terms of, uh, for example, in evidence-based uh, employment, there's a real emphasis on clinical and, and vocational collaboration. I think very often the employment people in that collaboration are kind of seen as the junior members of the team. And it takes an assertive person to say, I don't just want to be here to report on people working. I want to provide some input on how you, you make sure that employment is included in all kinds of treatment planning, even when people aren't interested currently in working. That, that's certainly one thing. But I think the real issue is, is, is above the, the placement people, above the people who say already get it, the consumer and employment people, and really talk about um, spending time more with the clinical people about how they, they look at employment. Once again, as an administrator, I spent more of my time with nurses, doctors, clinical staff than I did with the employment staff because that's what I saw as the element. But I guess the, the, the two concrete things, whether you can control it yourself or not, is one that I think including employment and treatment planning for everybody who's unemployed, and I think certainly a, an employment specialist or a line person can be a, a strong advocate for that. The other issue is to be very um, upfront about reporting outcomes and output and activity around employment. Very often, it's very hard for a community mental health center or mental health system of care to develop accurate information about employment. So the extent that an employment specialist is doing a good job about collecting data to make sure that that kind of employment-oriented data gets collected beyond the particular program that they're working with, but gets collected in the broader system of care. So our next question comes from Joseph, and he asks, regardless of education, goals, and experience, why are consumers still limited in terms of placement? For example, food, filth, filling, and peer jobs at minimum wage? You know, it's a double-edged sword. I, I think on, on, if you will, the positive side, even though those, those um, you know, food, filth, filing, uh, people have added fetching and folding to it. Uh, you know, there's a, a large numbers of vets. One practical issue is that often people come into the employment sphere without a lot of, of, of um, good work history or expansive work history. So it, it's pretty natural to get people into entry-level jobs. I think on the negative side, I think obviously there's a lot of entry-level jobs in those areas. And it, it, I don't want to use the word easy because doing job placement is hard. But certainly from an employment person perspective, there's a tendency to, to look at places that have that are um, require a lot of turnover, that have a lot of entry-level jobs that, if you will, are much more forgiving about people's past work history. So it, it's easier for people. It's more accommodating for em the employment specialist. I think also, I, I think to some extent that, that it has to do with that clinical issue that I mentioned, that people early on in the treatment planning have to, when we talk about taking a recovery-oriented uh, system of care and we talk about strengths-based planning, we have to help people in a vocational sense really examine their strengths, help people understand uh, are there things they can do that maybe they haven't done in the past, but they can take the next steps with. I'm less worried about people starting somewhere on the ladder than the fact that that's seen as the limits of their potential. So I, I think there's there's, if you will, fault or issues on all sides. I think sometimes consumers themselves lack self-confidence and are happy to take kind of what's there. 
Often employment people find it easier. Often vocational counseling is hard, whether you have a disability or not. And sometimes it's hard for people who don't have a vocational bent, like most clinical case managers, to, to take a strengths-based planning approach, but particularly looking at things like employment and, and not just what's your next step, but how does this step fit into the, the larger career progression? Catherine, who's in the room with us today, uh, has a question, and she writes, too often employers are more comfortable discussing accommodations for job seekers with physical disabilities, but there are still so many stigmas surrounding mental health and employment. How can I better educate or engage employers, human resource staff, recruiters uh, regarding job seekers I am assisting about mental health? I think you have to take a step back. Uh, I mean, part of it has to do with the issue about disclosure. I think as a general rule, not with everyone, there's a fair amount of data to show that if you disclose a psychiatric, psychological disability early on, your chances of getting hired tend to go down. That's not with everybody. That's a statistic. But I, I think in general, there's very little effective education at the upfront hiring point. People are much more accommodating in the broad sense when they get a chance to know people, when they get a chance to see them as people and as productive members of their workforce. So I would say, first of all, the important point when you think about accommodations is to try to encourage people to kind of enter as a, as a regular employee, if you will. In terms of possible kinds of accommodations, often the kinds of things you see from people with psychiatric disabilities are um, increased break time, uh, a different style of supervision, uh, more time off, uh, the ability to, to uh, um, work in a different environment. I think part of the reason why it's tougher for employers is that those tend to require alterations of kind of the basic um, system of work that they have. So from a logical point of view, that's kind of a common sense reaction to it. But I think what's important for, for a job developer to understand that lots of things we think of as accommodations for people with mental illness are done pretty naturally by a lot of employers. And I think often you can do more or less by talking about the technical aspect of what a person with a mental illness needs to, to be accommodated with, but rather than this is a worker who's a good worker, and here are some of the things that, that occur with that worker that you might be more flexible about, just like you are with other people. Many Most accommodations in the workforce for anybody are not done through an official accommodation process. They're, they're done through kind of common sense, human kind of modification. As a general rule, when you talk about educating employers, the ability to educate anybody, employers or the general public, just by information as opposed to positive experience is very limited. So I would, I would think much more about engaging the person and getting the person connected much more as, a, as an early employee. And then after some relationship is developed, you might be able to, to assist that person person in getting something that looks like a modification or accommodation. But an upfront kind of discussion about it is, in general, not the most helpful way to approach it. Trina, who's in the room here, asks uh, about Canadian statistics, and especially transition-age youth. Do you know where someone might look for stats on employment for Canadians? I don't know specifically. I might even be able to help dig it up. I, I don't have it offhand. There's, there's a Canadian Council on Rehabilitation and Work that's kind of like uh, our equivalent of the what used to be the President's Commission on Employment. Uh, I think it's currently, it was in Winnipeg, it then moved to Toronto. I think it might be back to Winnipeg. There's some national stuff that, that uh, gets published in the literature. I could, I'd be happy to send you some. I have some stuff on that. I don't have it offhand. I'd be happy to send David or the folks at BU some of the data I have, you know, because the Canadian system is slightly different. I think the provincial ministry of health is much more likely to have much more accurate data than the federal government, just by the nature of the, the Canadian governmental structure. But certainly the Canadian Council on Rehab and Work, and I'll, I'll look at some stuff, and David, I could send it to you or folks at BU, and then you can yeah. distribute it. Go, go ahead and send it to me, and um, I typed in our email address, which is styrehab at bu.edu. Uh, anyone who wants that info, if you just send us an email, I'll, I'll make sure to pass it on. Switch back to one other question, and then I'll get to a couple questions in the room. Well, let me just asked, mention one thing. I know you're asking about Canada. We collect that. We, we being the United States, the, the, the SAMHSA, the federal authorities, collect information about employment statistics within the adult mental health system of care. I would say that the no one, including me, believes those statistics are accurate, so even though we have a on the surface, an easier way of collecting the data than you might have in Canada. The statistics are really seen as, as, as poorly collected and, and, and poorly defined. So it's, it's a broader issue than just Canada. Don asks, uh, how are we to expect to retain good quality staff with the low wages that are paid? People have families and are 
they're living in Chicago and they can't afford to stay with a nonprofit, you know, and live? Uh, I mean, the simple answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's a broad issue in kind of entry-level human service work. And it has to do with kind of our political culture, our capitalist society. So the, the simple answer is, I don't know. I think um, an element of it, I mean, wages are really important, particularly if you live in a high-cost city like Boston or Seattle or Chicago. I think there's the other issue that leads to the turnover is that employment staff are uh, often seen as kind of, as I said, the junior members of the team, not really seen as people that are core members of, of the mental health system of care. I find sort of a paternalistic, maternalistic kind of view when I go to a provider or I go to a, a state or a county and they talk about their employment system, even at the state level, the state coordinator of employment, I'll often get what I see as sort of a paternalistic, maternalistic, oh, this is Harvey. He's, he's someone we couldn't do without of, but they're not really seen as, as core professionals within the system of care. So I think at one level, you can do a better job of creating an environment where people are really seen as core, uh, core staff. I mean, just for an example, you know, it's, it's only one example. I have much more to do with the person. The person who currently is, 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 is the um, basically third in command of the Washington State uh, Division of, of Behavioral Health started as a job coach for me at my mental health center. And most of her rise has to do with her own skills, obviously, but a piece of it has to do with the fact that employment went up. At the mental health center, employment became a core element and a key feature of what they did and what they were known for and got recognized. So I think there's a system piece to it beyond just the pay. Certainly there's you know, political issues like unions and stuff like that, which lead to higher pay. But there's also other issues about work environment, work culture, how, how staff like that are valued. How do you create a, a career ladder, uh, not just for the entry-level people? In other words, if you're just an employment provider, what other places can you go within that system beyond just, say, the head of employment services? But, I mean, the issue of low pay for human service staff, I think, will be with us for quite a while. Lori, uh, in the chat box, and, and for anyone who is curious how to ask a question without being on the phone, there's a chat box in, in the room here, and if you type into it, uh, I can read those questions to Joe. That way he can just, you know, focus on answering. Uh, Lori, and I think she's responding uh, to one of the answers you gave, Joe. She says, what about mutually agreed upon voluntary periods for the sake of orientation, skill development, et cetera, ahead of paid employment? She says, it has worked well with uh, peer specialists in my organizations. Their voices are much more central to the process of employment. Any ideas about generalizing this to other employment settings? So, uh, Laurie, are you talking about basically the role of volunteer work as opposed to paid employment? Is that the basic question? I, I, I think, it, because I don't see her typing, I think it's the volunteer work or, you know, an internship before paid employment. Yeah, I think the, the, the you know, the issue with, vol I think actually, you know, the general statement, I think it's volunteer work is very helpful for people who have been in disadvantaged or, or, or uh, uh, positions in, in society, and being able to be in a real volunteer position where they're, they're valued for what they do, where they produce something of value for, for an organization is very good. I think the issue when, when we talk about employment is often two things, two issues around volunteer work. Excuse me. One is people conflate volunteer work with employment. In other words, when we talk about collecting data, when I talk about helping people develop a data system around employment, very often they want to include all kinds of things as employment outcomes. And volunteer work, I think, could be a good activity, but it's not an employment outcome. That's number one. Number two, I think volunteer work in in if you will, normal volunteer positions. In other words, other places that help, that usually use volunteers, hospitals, schools, um, homeless places, uh, uh, you know, places in the community that rely on volunteers, you know, pet shelters, whatever, I think is very useful. What I sometimes see is people creating ersatz or, or, or fake volunteer positions. I actually heard, I mean, that's not what Laurie mentioned, <laughs> I used to work with, I worked with one program where they were talking about their volunteer positions, and the volunteer positions were at the hardware store, at the, um, at the restaurant, and those are volunteer positions. That's unpaid labor, which you can't do. So I think as long as, as, as it's seen as an activity to help people develop their own sense of self-confidence, their own ability to give back, that's great. I think they should be in, in kind of regular positions where there are other volunteers who may not have a, a, a mental health issue. 
And the third element, which is a core part of any good employment, it can't be seen as a necessary step. In other words, it can't be seen as before it will help you get a job, you need to do this volunteer position. But given those three caveats, I think volunteer work is very healthy for people, and, and people do get a lot out of it. And sometimes it's things they learn about themselves in terms of self-confidence or their interests or skills, but it's also a question of giving something back, and people feel like they're they're a person of worth because they're giving something back, and they're not just a consumer of services or a client. Uh, Lynn asks, is there any published research yet on the effectiveness of the IPS model with populations other than mental illness, serious mental illness, or populations with co-occurring, multi-occurring diagnoses? Yeah, they they they've done um, um, they being uh, uh, other folks, but you know, Westat, formerly Dartmouth, has done early on when they started the IPS, what became IPS in in uh, Western New Hampshire. There was a lot of criticism about, um, well, this works in rural New Hampshire. It doesn't work with fill in the blank. The next step with that, they did some work in Washington, D.C. with any city folks. There's actually been a lot of work with, with people with different kinds of disabilities, including co-occurring disorders. You know, there's, there's a fair amount of research, and BU certainly has access to that, too. Um, and it's part of their research and training center. To some extent, we've, we're coming full circle. One, one, one of the things they're starting to research is the effectiveness of IPS with people with intellectual disabilities, which is kind of interesting because to some extent the supported employment movement itself came out of the work with people with intellectual disabilities. And there's really a lot of overlap. The major, the major um, distinction is one of the elements of IPS is that there needs to be this kind of clinical coordination between vocational and mental health, whereas in intellectual disabilities, the service system is not a clinical service system. It's a, it's a community service system, so, so there isn't as that kind of need now, there is some beginning work that I haven't seen quite uh, well developed yet about looking at people with intellectual disabilities who also have um, uh, some psychiatric disabilities. You know, one of, one of the hidden issues with people with intellectual disabilities is close to 40 to 50% of adults with intellectual disabilities probably have some form of diagnosable depression that often doesn't get dealt with very well by the mental health system. But yes, there has been a lot, of, a lot of the research over the last 20 years with IPS has been with various populations. This field has a lot of acronyms in it. So for, for anyone who's not looking at the chat room and doesn't know, IPS is Individual Placement and Support. So Yolanda asks us, how can I help a consumer attain a job when he or she is so picky and everything I present seems to be a problem? And I have to start <laughs> all over and searching for other jobs. <laughs> I'm chuckling. You know, picky is... is Picky. I mean, people are people, you know, whether they have the mental health consumers or not. Some people are pickier than others. Some people make their life harder. Um, I think on both, if you will, on both ends of the equation. I think as, as someone who's done employment and managed employment services, I try to help my staff understand that you have to be where people are. People aren't being picky. They're telling you what's important to them. Now, what they tell you is important to them may make it more difficult to do your job. But that's a that's a human issue. I mean, we have friends who are picky, who are who are won't take certain jobs. We have um, you know you know people probably in your family. So I, you know that's just an issue of humanity. I think once you have a relationship with a person, one one of the reality based issues you talk to people about is if you're looking for a job and if employment is important to you, and you're finding after a certain period that your desired employment isn't there for you, then you have to examine, and I'll help, I as a helper will help you examine, does it have to do with your skills? Does it have to do with your location? Does it have to do with, with, with the way you present yourself? So then maybe we can talk some issues about how does, how does that affect what you, your life? But I think, the, the, I think too often we see people's desires as being impediments to us rather than our, our, our skills or our abilities or our, our situations which we have to deal with. I mean, if you're a job developer in rural northern Michigan, there are not as many jobs available to you. So you have to deal with reality, too. But I think to some extent we can't just lay it on the person. A person kind of identifies to them, and you help them identify their strengths, their interests, their environments. If that doesn't match what's available, hopefully you have enough of a relationship with people to say, here are the limits of what I can do. Here's what you're telling me. Here are some other options, whether that's a move, whether that's further schooling, whether that's taking something else initially but keeping that dream alive. So I, I, I guess I – well, I don't guess. I recognize the issue from a staff point of view, but I think 
just making it a client being picky as the problem may, may kind of um, uh, trivialize the problem a little too much. Leo, who's with us today, asks, how do I encourage my son to get a vocational assessment? Ah, well, part of it depends on how old he is. Part, part of it depends on, I don't, I don't know what you mean. I mean, if the issue is, how do I encourage my son to consider employment? I, I think there's a different, frankly, there's a different role for a parent or, 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 or a close friend than there is for a professional. I think as staff, as, as, as anybody in the field, one of the things I try to do is to help people understand that choosing to remain employed is very unhealthy for long-term physical and mental health. I think that's something even professionals in the field don't understand. So I, I think from a practical point of view, when you have discussions with your son about that, that and if the issue is he's not working at all or is concerned about or he chooses not to work, he has to at least understand that that's some of the risks he takes. I think as a parent, frankly, you have more capacity to nag. I think if, if a person's living with you, I think that's, you know, some, you have a lot more um, relevance to say, here's what I hope you'll do. Vocational assessment is a loaded term. And once again, that's why I ask, I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, if I'm talking to a person, not as a parent, but it was reluctant to move ahead about employment, I not just talk about the dangers of long-term unemployment, but I also say, what can I do to help you? What's getting in your way? What are the things that are stopping you? You know, most people with mental disabilities, just like anybody else, aren't lazy. You know, maybe 10% of the world is lazy. So it's holding people back often isn't that they don't want to work or they're not interested in a vocational assessment, but they're scared, they don't have confidence in the people they're dealing with, they've had bad experiences. So, so part of it is, is understanding kind of what's getting in the way. The other issue, which is easier for a professional, if you will, to deal with than a, a parent who's kind of living it, is people move at their own pace. Uh, we deal with people at certain points of their time so somebody who's 20 years old may not be interested. At 25, they are. At, at 30, they are. People's pacing is, is, is certainly up to them. As I said, as a parent, particularly if somebody's living with you, but even if they're not because you're, you know, dealing with problems that your son or daughter has is much more stressful in a lot of ways than dealing with your own problems. Part of the recognition is that people have to move at their own pace, but, but to the extent that you can sort of identify to people what's getting in the way and what, what can you do to help eliminate some of those barriers. But it's really that people don't want to work. It often has to do with some of those other things, like I said, fears, previous experience. They don't have confidence in the people they're dealing with. And that's one of the things maybe as a parent you could help identify with them. But ultimately, people have to make their own choices. Sarah asks us, I have ADD, which makes me take longer to complete tasks. I work at a nonprofit and they won't pay me overtime hours. I'm willing to sign a waiver uh, so that they only have to pay me for 40 a week, but they won't accept that. Do you have any advice? Well, one is a practical matter. They can't waive um, wage and hour laws. Even, I don't know if they want to, but even if they wanted to, they, they really can't waive it. I, it depends on, on, on uh, you know, if you're an hourly employee, they essentially can't waive it. That's from a legalistic point. I'm not a lawyer, but that's from a, a legal point of view. In terms of, 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 you know, whatever the cause of it, if it takes you longer to complete tasks, I guess part of the issue is, is it your stress or is it, are they putting the stress on you? In other words, do you want to take, do you want to work the extra hours because they're saying you're not cutting the mustard because you're taking too long? Or are you just feeling you should be able to complete more? So you need to identify that first. That they may be happy with the, the pace you're working with, and you're uncomfortable with it, and maybe that's the accommodation you make for yourself, that I, I know my own skills, my own pacing, and I do a good job. It just takes me slower. Uh, certainly from a, a, pre, um, a technical point of view, you know, if I were like an employment person working with you, there may be things that you uh, are doing that maybe can be changed. There may be a different way of organizing the work that maybe you don't see that someone can help you with. But I think, number one, you have to decide, are you just uncomfortable with your own pace or is, or is the nonprofit or whoever, your employer, uncomfortable? And if your employer is uncomfortable with the pace, are there things that could be changed about the things you have to do or reorganized? And that may be something where if, maybe somebody can help you do that. Maybe the employer has suggestions. But you have to decide what's the level of discomfort. But you, anyway, you can't. People, if you're an hourly employee, essentially, people can't waive the, the ability to pay you for hours you put in. If you're a salaried employee, there's a lot more flexibility. Uh, Lori writes to us, 
considering new Medicaid reform states and work requirements, one roadblock is insufficient numbers of employers who will allow access to folks with psychiatric histories or allows access, then let them go once they find out about the mental health issues. Have there been states who have shown success with tax incentives or other programs that have improved employment outcomes? In in general, no. Um, there's certainly the, the, I think it's called something else now, the old work opportunity tax credit, which multiple um, assessments done by federal government, by researchers have shown that tax credits and tax incentives don't really increase the employment of people with, uh, let me say, increase the employment of people with any disabilities beyond what might have happened anyway. In other words, the major uses of things like the tax credits nationally have been entry-level employees that have a lot of turnover that basically generate a lot of income from that. Uh, you know, that's the old food-filled flowers kind of um, operation that we talked about earlier. Uh, internationally, there's a lot of strategies uh, having to do with um, uh, quota systems, with tax penalties if you, you don't have enough people with disabilities. In general, those kind of fiscal incentives haven't worked. There's a certain movement by, by some economic researchers, uh, for example, people of Mathematica, to try to connect um, <clears throat> what we think of it as, as um, uh, workers' comp or people going on Social Security to an, uh, a specific employer financing. That is that people get incentivized for encouraging workers who might have a disability not to go on public assistance. That's, um, and there's a certain, uh, there are a few papers about that, particularly Mathematica has been one of the groups that's really pushed that. In our current environment, that's very hard to talk about employer penalties for that, but that's, that's been much more of an emphasis to say, what are some different ways of looking at encouraging people to retain employers? Uh, certainly people, um, I say aren't allowed. We, we have an ADA, we have written laws that basically say, just because people find out you have a psychiatric disability doesn't mean they can fire you for that. We all know there are lots of ways around it. In general, the, the ADA has been much more protective than, let me say, much more successful about protecting people who are already employed from, from being terminated due to disability. Then they've been able to really make an impact on encouraging employers to be more open against the stigma of mental illness to people who have applied with a psychiatric disability. Uh, I don't even like the word stigma. What we're talking about is discrimination. But in general, the, the, the fiscal incentives that exist in, in uh, frankly, in the U.S. and in other countries have not statistically proven very effective on encouraging employers to hire people. Once again, I'll reiterate, I think in general, identifying yourself or identifying your client as a person with a mental illness in the hiring process is generally not a good strategy. Now, there are reasons to do it. And when I do training, I have a whole little sort of decision tree. But as a general rule, understand that there is a strong discriminatory behavior against people with identified mental illness, particularly in the hiring process that occurs with many employers. And to the extent you can take that out of the mix, not by education, but frankly, by not being that open about it, you'll be much more successful. And then after a person is hired, then if the person feels there's an important issue about disclosing, about identifying his or her needs to people, that's much more successful after a personal relationship has been developed. Jebediah asks, how do you aid an individual in identifying and exploring their particular mental health barriers in finding and sustaining employment? Well, I don't want to be simplistic. I mean, first, you kind of you ask them. I guess, you know, insight is not always everyone's strong point, whether you have a, a psychiatric disability or not. So. Certainly have to go beyond that, but as a starting point, I would certainly talk about asking people about what their experiences have been, what's getting in the way, what would, what would they like to see out of the way. Certainly there's a lot of emphasis on, on taking a broader view of vocational assessment, if you will, like Theo um, uh, asked earlier, rather than seeing it as a series of tests, to really talk about getting to know the person, to look at the person's strengths, to see how they operate in different environments. To, <coughs> excuse me to, to uh, help them identify what kind of environments they find useful from their own experience, help them test out things, maybe through volunteering, maybe through transitional work, maybe through work experience, depending on their age, 
So I, I, I think that the, you know, doing it, you know, I, I sound too simplistic because obviously some people are easier, more open to that than others. But I don't know any better way of helping people explore than to, to take a non-judgmental, what has been getting, what do you identify as getting in the way? What are your hopes? What are your fears? Here's what I see as a helper. Here's the kinds of things we can do to, to, to ameliorate some of those things. Now, once again, if someone has not had a lot of work experience, then part of it, they test it out. Maybe things that, that you think are a barrier haven't been a barrier, and maybe things, <coughs> excuse me, that you hadn't perceived as a problem, other people perceive as a problem. Understand when we talk about work, barriers to work or success in work, we're not talking about, there's no global thing of work. There's a job, an employer, and a person. And a good employment person and a good employment program creates a match between a specific job, a specific employer, and a specific person. Uh, frankly, I've known, uh, uh, as a general rule, I would say I, I know a lot of private industry employers that are much more flexible about jobs than, say, people in governmental positions. Um, Sometimes employers have personal experience that either makes them more open or less open. But I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to think about, and it's one of the things we've tried to get away from when we talk about good employment services. There's no such thing as work in general. There's a job, there's an employer, and there's a person. And it's a, really a triangular match. And within the job, there's a specific environment and specific skills needed. With an employer, there's a certain kind of skill set he or she needs, but there's also a personality and a culture of that own employer. And then the person, him or herself, has certain skills and also certain values. And so the, when we talk about how do we talk to people about what's getting in the way, we really need to think more specifically about those kinds of things, about a specific kind of job, a specific kind of employer with a specific person, rather than as person ready for work or not. You know, we, we've spent a lot of years trying to get away from that. But it's tempting to do because we're dealing with a lot of people, many of whom present barriers that we struggle with ourselves, not just them. And so it's tempting to think about who fits into this niche or not. But we really can't think about work as a concept. We need to think about a job and an employer with the person. Sure. Uh, Ken asks that given the stagnation in wages, in an increasingly costly environment, uh, and the increase in contract employment as opposed to long-term stable work. How can we not be concerned, and what can we do to prepare consumers for the difficulties of working, and perhaps working beyond capacity without making ends meet? Excuse me, I didn't get the last one. Without what? Without making ends meet. Oh, uh, that's another one. I don't know. You're talking about our economy. Um, many of you, as I do, probably know people working one or two jobs that are still poor. Um, you know, my basic answer comes back to what I started with, that the, 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 the negative effects of long-term unemployment are, are very strong in terms of people's physical and mental health. So whatever the dangers of employment, long-term unemployment is very bad. That's different than a job. There are a lot of jobs that are not very good for a person's physical or mental health. So part of it is, is, is you're dealing with it with a, a, a real economy. One of the, the issues around community inclusion is that you're included in a community that may or may not be functioning well just as a community. Because we're in a position, as you identified, <coughs> excuse me, where, where there's a lot more emphasis on contract labor, where there's wage stagnation, even though it's moving up a little bit, where unions... Uh, have basically, you know, lost members and lost credibility. So we can't do much in the short term about changing that. However, I think what we can do with people is, is to, number one, help them identify some of the dangers of long-term unemployment. To the extent we can, help them find a niche that may not be the, the most economically satisfying but has uh, emotional satisfaction meets a certain set of values and interests that they have. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, helping people deal with, 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 with uh, being eligible for, for, for things like work incentives. I think what we found around things like work incentives for people who, who, have, who are employed but don't make enough to make ends meet, 
is that they're very helpful for people once they've decided to choose employment. There haven't been strong motivators of people to choose employment in the first place. So I, I think that's uh, yeah, the best you can do because we're dealing with a society that has some of those problems. <coughs> Excuse me. That you identified that go way beyond workers with disabilities that have to do with with workers in general. Uh, Marlene asks, what are uh, strategies to assist our clients who experience both physical and mental health issues as they age? Uh, this often impacts their work performance. How do we address age discrimination with our clients? Well, I think, uh, and uh, let me go one step earlier. I think um, those of you who are old enough as I am to remember the 60s and when the civil rights laws came in, and, and I think it was uh, 72, I think, when the age discrimination laws came in, but I'm not sure of that. But anyway, understand that the legal issues around discrimination were treated as legal discriminatory issues. They weren't treated as stigma issues. And I think one of the problems we have in disability is that we treat disability as something to deal with stigma in education and not to deal with legally. And I think, frankly, Advocates, whether you're employer, whether you're uh, job developers, whether you're mental health systems, whether you're researchers, have to encourage people more to take a more legalistic approach to disability discrimination. In terms of age discrimination, it occurs, um, you know, it depends on the industry. There's a lot of industries where because of the economy, particularly over the last 20 years, where what's happening is actually more older workers are, 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 are staying beyond the normal retirement age. But it's very hard to get hired if you're, now once again, remember a lot of the age discrimination uh, legal uh, safety net starts at age 40, you know, an age we don't really think of as, as, as old. So part of it depends on, on, on what you're talking about. But certainly if you're talking about someone who's in say their 40s, 50s, 60s, that looking for an entry level job, that does, that does become a problem for people. You know, their job-seeking skills, um, uh, uh, tricks, if you will, or techniques that we talk to people about, talk about how what they've done in the past, even though it wasn't an employment, translates to employment, how it talks about selling yourself, how it talks about early on, if you have an obvious problem, having to do with your age or physical disability, you bring it up yourself and getting it out of the way, if you will. But we, we live in a society that basically does have a lot of age discrimination. You know, and it depends on the, on the field. You know, certainly technology, there's a lot of over-age discrimination. In, in other areas, in human services, it varies. So uh, I don't know if you could prepare people. You know, you can certainly talk about some of the techniques we use in, 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 in job-seeking skills. But you also talk about if people are really facing discrimination, that they can identify as age-related are the legal recourses you can help them with, that you can identify with. Because that's why we have laws against discrimination of people with disabilities, sexual orientation, age, or whatever. Debbie asks, uh, what do legislatures need to know to craft supportive state laws? Uh, you know, it depends on the legislature. I, I think when you think about any kind of um, state or, or um federal kind of legislative stuff, I, I think as, as a simplistic bifurcation, legislators, the actual elected representatives themselves, really resonate with personal stories and how it relates to their constituents. I think staff of legislators, the people you're often dealing with, are much more uh, nuts and bolts. They want to know costs. They want to know uh, impact on, on employers impact on medical costs. One of the issues with, with uh, things like return on investment, and there's, there's a, um, uh, the IPS and other folks have done, um, uh, folks in voc re vocational rehabilitation too, have done uh, some studies about return on investment to society of people working. There's some hard data about the return to society, the investment return to society of people being taxpayers rather than recipients of, of public assistance. The problem is the organizations putting out the money. So for example, a state mental health system may be developing policies that spend money on employment. Those policies may have a strong impact on overall societal spending on health or unemployment 
but they don't necessarily get the money back themselves. So the the return on investment is a little bit complicated in that the actual return may not may not return to the organization incurring on the incurring the 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 costs. I would say that to the extent that people are interested in cost data, there's there's a fair amount of data about the cost benefit of things like employment. Uh, some states that have used what's called a um, a Medicaid waiver, often called a, a, a there's different kinds of Medicaid waivers, but the most common in mental health is a, is an 1115 waiver. Part of part of the 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 um, elements of that to get it to demonstrate to Medicaid when you apply for it how you expect to save Medicaid cost of the money by providing these kinds of of, of complementary services. So, for example, Delaware has a, a has a uh, eleven fifteen Medicaid waiver for people in their mental health system. Washington just got approved an eleven fifteen Medicaid waiver with three tracks: one for coordinated mental and physical health, one for supported employment, and one for supported housing. And to get that waiver, they had to come up with some cost projections about how provision of these services will, in fact, save this save Medicaid money based on providing these services. They then have to report on that back to Medicaid over the, the next few years. So I think legislators um, uh, rely on that. But I think, frankly, one of the political, small p political issues that I find is there is not really a strong grassroots push from consumers and families to make employment an essential part of the system of care. There's a certain amount of push to include employment as a possibility for people who choose to work. But when you talk about legislators and, 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 and political movements, I find legislators don't hear very often from consumers and families very strongly about the importance of employment. Uh, New York State probably has some of the strongest uh, relatively grassroots advocacy at the legislative level in terms of their weekend work campaign to really push, if you will, employment. But I think one of the things we need to be concerned about from a broad advocacy perspective is getting consumer and family groups much more assertive with legis their legislators and legislatures in general about how employment needs to be ingrained much more into community services and mental health. There really is not that kind of push that you see, for example, in developmental disabilities from consumers and families in terms of really pushing systems to make sure employment is, is, is included within a system of care. You know, we only have a, a few minutes left, so I'm going to try to lump uh, a couple questions together here that are similar. Uh, they're, they're, the questions are about how to help someone talk with their employer about the symptoms that negatively infect their work. And the two examples are they're a probationary employee who needs more time off. Uh, and the other one is just generally dealing with their psychiatric symptoms that are ongoing. Go ahead, Joe. Well, you know, once again, it depends on the person and the employer. The, 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 let, let me uh, separate them. In terms of time off from work at the, at the probationary period, you know, it depends on how much time and, and, and what's to work. I mean, it, it's, it's not uncommon for people, whether they're in their probationary period or not, to have a doctor's appointment or something like that. So I guess part of the issue is how much time are you talking about? You know, someone working in food service is going to have a harder time getting lunchtime off than 3 o'clock off. Someone who's requesting uh, a couple hours off once a month for three months is going to have less, in general, less problem than someone who says, I need three hours off every week. So part of it depends on the situation. Uh, the, 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 but it's not uncommon for people, so I don't think we should... Yes. You know, if you, if you can get through a probationary period being an exemplary employee, and this is someone I give, whether you have a disability or not, I tell people. If you get through any kind of early period being an exemplary employee, after that early period, there's a lot more more forgiveness for, for, for things that aren't exemplary. So, But if you don't have that option, to really treat it as, as, as a normal thing. Geez, I have a doctor's appointment. Is it okay? Can I make it up? Uh, what's a convenient time? I think we also have to understand, though, from the clinical side, if what people need is time off clinically, 
one of the issues we have to ask people, we have to ask systems is, are you making the services you provide people accessible to people who need to work? I still run into, uh, this is 2017, I run into places where people are asked to take time off of work to attend a residential meeting that happens at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Tuesdays. I still have people say they need to take time off of work because their medication appointment can't be changed. So from a system point of view, we also need to say, can we make it easier to work by changing the way we operate our own system? But if people do need time off, that's fairly natural, you know, depending on the context. In terms of the second part of that question, I wouldn't try to educate employers about psychiatric disability early on. What you're trying to talk to people about are, are the things about me as a worker that are slightly different than other workers who may be, and people are used to idiosyncrasies. As someone who's hired people, everybody I hire has an idiosyncrasy. I have idiosyncrasies. So I wouldn't try to treat it as a mental health education. I would try to treat it as I'm a good employee. Here's why I'm a good employee. Here's some of the things that are a little different. Are these the kinds of things that, are, that we can work out? Do you have a problem with that, Mr. Ms. Employer? If you do, are there other ways I can deal with that? I really would, would, would unless you, you see yourself as a community change agent overall, I really would downplay your role as an educator about mental illness to employers. If nothing else, if you do see that as your role, I would wait till you're safely ensconced as a valued employee. But up until then, I would just see you, you're a person who has individual needs just like a lot of other people do, just like working moms do, just like uh, people who have physical issues do, just like people who are in school do. So just how can you work out something that doesn't uh, uh, detract from what the employer needs, but that meets your need, just like every other employee? Well, Joe... Thank you for your time in answering everyone's questions, and everyone, thank you for your attendance. Uh, look for the next Ask Me Anything About Employment webinar in your mailboxes. In the next few days, you should receive a survey about your experience, and we'd love to get your feedback about this event. Thank you, everyone. Thank you again, Joe, and we look forward to having everyone join again. Have a good day. I'll send David some of those stuff. I do have some Canadian stats, but as I said, it's much more accurate at the provincial level. Sure, and if anyone wants that information, please just email the Sci Rehab, and I'll put that email address in again, at bu.edu, and we'll pass it on. Thank you, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody.